Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In early September, several former commanders of the FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Columbia, announced a new phase of armed struggle. The three had been negotiators in FARC's peace talks with the Colombian government. It has people wondering about the viability of the 2016 peace accords. We're going to chat now with somebody who knows a good deal about those accords, Doug Castle, professor emeritus of law at Notre Dame Law School, and he was a human rights commentator on this program from 1994 to 2010, and we will reminisce a bit with Doug, too. Good to talk with you, Doug Castle. Thank you, Jerome. Great to be back on the program. Now, what is happening here with Colombia? Because if you see the headline that these commanders are going into a new phase of the armed struggle, you would think, well, this is really bad for the peace process. How would you describe it? Oh, there are some things that are bad for the peace process, but it's not these guys. I think they're delusional. Um, During 2015 and 2016, uh, I was one of the negotiators for President Santos of Colombia, uh, directly with at least two of these gentlemen, uh, Ivan Marquez, who was the head negotiator for the guerrillas, and Jesus Santrich, who was the hardest line person in the bunch. And I thought uh, Marquez, at least, had become convinced that the root of armed struggle was not going to accomplish very much. The FARC had been losing the military side of the war for years. Several of their former top commanders had been taken out by the Colombian military with a lot of U.S. aid. Uh, And I thought they were ready to turn over a new leaf. I also thought that they were fantasizing when they thought they could be like the guerrillas in El Salvador and go into elections and get significant votes and even be the largest party uh, or one of them in the Congress, the way the Salvadoran FMLN was. And then not long after that, the FMLN has sort of alternated the presidency of El Salvador over these last 27 years. And the FARC thought they were going to do that in Colombia. And they got absolutely clobbered in the first elections in which they participated. And I think um, Marcus uh, sort of got shocked by that and went into hiding, probably in Venezuela. And then Jesus Santrich, one of the other defecting commandantes, uh, got caught by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency in uh, an alleged drug deal. Uh, And although the peace accords provided a transitional justice system for crimes committed before the peace accords were signed, Santrich got caught allegedly in a drug deal after the peace accords were signed. And that Uh. meant he would not be protected from being extradited to the United States. And so he uh, ended up jumping ship. But I don't think that Marquez and Santrich and uh, the others who joined them in making that announcement a month ago present a serious threat to the peace process because they have very few troops at this point, very few guns, and very few followers. I think this is uh, frustration on their part. It's noise. Uh, The peace process faces many difficulties, but the announcement by uh, those gentlemen that they don't want to continue in the peace process, I think, is a sideshow. What is the biggest challenge to the accords in Colombia? Because I was reading uh, something from earlier this year from the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at Notre Dame, and they're monitoring the whole thing. And it sounds like implementation has been slow. The new president, you know, is uh, not a huge fan of the agreement. Why is that the main obstacle right now? I think the main obstacle is probably former President Uribe, who is the political power behind current president, Ivan Duque. Uribe opposed the peace process from day one. 
He opposed the peace agreements from day two, uh, and he's opposed any effort to implement them from day three. And he's the most popular political figure in Colombia. And uh, one can see lots of strands of difficulties facing the peace process. But when the most powerful politician in the country is against them, that's clearly a significant challenge. The other challenge is that the government has not been able to bring peace and economic development to the countryside. Former paramilitaries, what are called criminal gangs now, are marauding the countryside. Many of the community leaders and human rights defenders are being assassinated. Colombia is a very large country with a lot of mountains, a lot of forests. And the Colombian army, although it is the strongest army in Latin America, without a doubt, uh, has simply not been able to cover the entire national territory and protect the people whose participation in the peace process at the grassroots level is important. I'm talking with Doug Castle, professor emeritus of law at Notre Dame Law School. He was involved in the negotiations in the Colombian peace process. He was with the transitional justice component of the peace agreement. And Doug, you've got an order of merit, uh, the Colombia's highest award granted to foreign citizens for your role. And you got to tag along to the Oslo Peace Accords with President Dos Santos. I did. Uh, it was a tremendous honor and privilege to be able to stand with the people of Colombia and try to find a way out of a, a war, a civil war that has gone on for generations, pretty much as long as anybody's been alive. And uh, President Santos was very gracious to invite me and my wife to join the delegation to Oslo for the peace process. Amy and I, my wife Amy Griffin and I, got to the hall in Oslo where the uh, big ceremony was being held with the royalty of Norway and President Santos gave a terrific speech. Uh, but when we went in there, it turns out they had a ticket for my seat and not for Amy. So Amy sat in the press section. And then when they cleared the press section out, somebody from security came by and said, don't you have a seat? And Amy said, that's exactly the problem. I don't seem to have one. So they found one empty seat in the place. And that was the wife of the U.S. ambassador to Norway. Rather than attend the peace process uh, prize ceremony, uh, she decided to go shopping. And so Amy sat with the U.S. <laughs> ambassador during the ceremonies. Doug, you were uh, the human rights commentator in this program from 1994 to 2010. And still the idea of a human rights commentator was something we just kind of invented. I don't remember exactly how we started, but my memory of it is you were on Sandra Gare's Midday program. We wanted to do more human rights things, and something happened. I remember proposing it to you uh, because I was interested at that time not just in human rights, but in international human rights law and international human rights institutions. And in the United States at that time and still today, uh, there was very little familiarity on the part of the educated public uh, or politicians or members of the press or people in universities with either of those topics, international law and institutions and human rights. And so I saw the opportunity to do a commentary uh, on your program on a weekly basis or close to a weekly basis as an opportunity to hopefully let decision makers and educated voters know about a whole dimension of international life that wasn't being covered by the mainstream media. And while I'm at it, I should add uh, that your program, and there are a few others around the country, but not many, your program was a unique 
uh, asset, I think, for a major metropolitan area of the United States to provide to the listening public the kinds of uh, information and opinions about world affairs, not limited to human rights by any means, that are not available or not covered uh, except on a very sporadic uh, basis by the mainstream media or even by public radio in other towns. So uh, as I've said in writing to the management of WBEZ and publicly, uh, I think it's a great shame that they are uh, deciding apparently to not provide news and opinion and uh, information that's simply not readily available on other uh, radio stations. So en enough of that. I know the decision's been made, but I just had to stake my ground on that one. Um, Doug, I wanted to ask you about the commentaries. Uh, people still remember them fondly. I'm talking to, you know, reminiscing with a lot of people these days, and they're like, you haven't had Doug Castle on to reminisce. And so, uh, you know, I definitely wanted to get you in here because people remember the commentaries so fondly. And uh, they were so informative. Did you have favorite commentaries that you could slipped in there? Wow. Um, I don't think I did. I think my favorite was the possibility on a weekly or near weekly basis to take two kinds of things. One was matters that were happening in the headlines, but from my point of view, were being covered without any coverage of the international law aspects of them. Uh, for example, on, in that area, the bombing of Serbia in regard to Kosovo back in 1999 by President Clinton. The first bombing of its kind in NATO history. On March 24, 1999, Western nations carried out their threat against Serbia and began the biggest military conflict on Serbian soil since World War II. NATO saw the war as the only way to end President Slobodan Milosevic's violent crackdown in Kosovo, where his Serb nationalist forces were accused of ethnic cleansing against Kosovo's largely Muslim ethnic Albanian population. But what began as an attack on military targets soon expanded. Schools, monuments, homes and even the Chinese embassy were hit. At the end of the campaign, 11 weeks later, Human Rights Watch estimates around 500 civilians were killed. Uh, there was all kinds of discussion and lots of coverage, of course, by the, the NATO intervention in Yugoslavia. But there was very little realization that uh, what he was doing was a pretty clear violation of international law. Most international lawyers, even the ones who defended it as the right thing to do morally, had to acknowledge that it was illegal. And then uh, one of my arguments against violating the law in that instance was that that would set a precedent that would enable some future president to um, attack another country without doing so either in self-defense or based on a resolution of the United Nations Security Council. And sure enough, four years later, uh, George Bush could not get uh, a resolution from the Security Council to attack Iraq. And um, it, it was very difficult to make any claim that Iraq posed a serious threat directly against the United States that justified in, invading Iraq in self-defense. And what precedent did George Bush cite when he did that? Well, of course, he cited Clinton in Kosovo. Uh, and he had a point as far as the precedent goes, but they were wrong in both cases and how wrong they were was simply not being covered by the mainstream news media. So I really 
enjoyed being able to do commentaries that brought legal perspective into something that was otherwise being ignored, even though it was covered heavily in the headlines. And then the other kind of thing I liked to do was take issues in countries that nobody knew about, uh, as you've done on your program so many times over the years, and take some little country in in Africa or Latin America that's being ignored by the mainstream media and by the public and point out something that's happening in that country that's very important to the people who live there and in almost all cases had something to do for good or for ill with U.S. foreign policy at the time. So I I just enjoyed doing uh, both of those kinds of commentaries over the years. One of the things that was really fun that we ended up doing was having a debate between you and John Yoo. And uh, we did it at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, and we were in a bar, and it was quite an interesting debate. Uh, uh, some protesters came because John Yoo was so involved in the torture memo. They they came in orange jumpsuits and portrayed people who had been tortured in U.S. custody, and I, I let them ask a question. It was enormous fun for me. And you got to put something to John Yu that was repeated a million times in the press. And you asked him, you know, if the president deems he's got to torture somebody, including by crushing the testicles of the person's child, there is no law to stop him, right? And John Yu had to say, that, yeah, that's basically what I'm saying. That's what happened. Every lawyer doing a cross-examination of a witness, when you don't know what the answer is going to be, you know, goes out on a limb. And I knew that John Yu had taken the position that the president could do whatever he thought was necessary to win a war. And so I decided to press John Yu just how far he would take that. And so I asked him if the president thought he could uh, help win the war by crushing the testicles of the child of a suspected terrorist. Could the president do that? And I held my breath. You know, I thought maybe John Yu would say, well, no, there are some limits. And instead, uh, I think he answered something like, it depends on what the purpose of doing it is. Um, I don't have the exact words (laughs) in front of me, but they're memorialized, as you point out, in books and articles and the Internet all over the place. And, you know, when a witness gives a lawyer an answer like that, it's time to shut up. And I hope I did. (laughs) Yeah, that was a corker. I, I remember it fondly. And as you pointed out, actually, this was supposed to be all off the record. But it turns out that one of those people in an orange jumpsuit smuggled a microphone or I don't know if I guess we had cell phones in those days and recorded at least that part of the exchange. And so you can actually hear the oral exchange and use answer. If the president deems that he's got to torture somebody, including by crushing the testicles of the person's child, there is no law that can stop that. No treaty. And then also no law by Congress. That's what you wrote in the August 2002 memo. I think it depends on why the president thinks he needs to do that. And you was furious about that. Yeah, The Intercept has it up on their website these days. Wow. I'll I'll have have to go back and listen to it sometime. I'm talking with Doug Castle, professor emeritus of law at Notre Dame Law School. He did human rights commentaries on this program from 1994 to 2010. How did we do on getting up to speed on international human rights law? Um, I always think of Augusto Pinochet's detention as being a high water mark of that period. And then, you know, here we are today. 
Well, I think the 1990s were probably um, the high watermark of the values of international human rights law making a real difference in the world. That was possible because after the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, Soviet-style communism was discredited almost everywhere. Uh, Russia was on its knees. Uh, China was beginning to grow, but was still very weak economically, militarily, and diplomatically compared to where it is today. Uh, and we had a democratic president in office who was far from a champion of human rights, witness the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Rwanda during the genocide. But at least he was open to human rights in a number of areas. And during his first term, the United States ratified some major human rights treaties. Uh, but the world has changed tremendously since then. Uh, we now have a president of the United States who wouldn't know a human right if it hit him over the head. Uh, the same thing can be said of Putin in Russia and Xi Jinping in, um, in China. Uh, other major countries, the prime minister of India, Prime Minister Modi, is someone implicated in massacres of Muslims in the past. The most important oil potentate in the world, as we all know, Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, uh, is openly accused uh, with lots of evidence to support it of arranging a murder at the Saudi consulate in Turkey. Uh, so we have a situation where back in the 90s, we could at least count on some world leaders to denounce human rights violations when they took place. And as a result, we ultimately got the international criminal tribunals for Yugoslavia and then later for Rwanda. Now uh, you have a murder in plain view of the world and nothing is done about it. Uh, on a much larger scale, of course, we have all the atrocities in Syria and uh, Russia and China, rather than abstain from UN Security Council resolutions, as they sometimes did back in the early 90s, uh, have obstructed any possibility of taking serious action against the human rights violations in Syria. So it's a very different time. On the other hand, uh, history, including the history of human rights, is a long-term process. And there are ebbs and there are flows. Uh, right now, we're in an ebb. Uh, I am perennially optimistic that this ebb will sooner or later turn back into a flow. Uh, I think human rights are built on values that are just ingrained into the best side of human nature and human dignity. And I think international law is an instrument that reflects the fact that we are more and more in an interconnected world economically, uh, politically, environmentally. Uh, and it's just going to be unavoidable in the future for people to realize that we have to have some rules between nations, that we can't simply bluster, bluff, and threaten our way to achieve the objectives we hope to achieve. And I think the record of the current president of the United States for the last year or so is a good example of that. Uh, he's tried to beat Iran into submission. Instead, uh, the situation in Iran and its nuclear program is worse than ever. Uh, he's tried to uh, browbeat Latin American countries into cutting off their refugee flows by cutting off funding, which only makes things worse, et cetera, et cetera. Many other examples. Doug Castle is Professor Emeritus of Law at Notre Dame Law School. He was our human rights commentator on this program from 1994 to 2010. Uh, you know, thanks a lot, Doug. It was uh, great. Well, thank you, Jerome, and thanks not only on my part, but thanks to all of the people who benefited from your program over the last quarter of a century. 
For more than 30 years on Friday afternoon, you could hear film contributor Milos Stalik from Facets talking about film. Tomorrow, we'll spend the hour celebrating our friend and longtime film contributor. We'll play clips, talk with friends, and share stories. We wanted to share some listener stories about Milos, and we'll have the listener hotline on guard, ready to take your call. The number is 312-893-8680, and that's Julian Haida, our producer's number. And we're going to play some clips of listeners and their memories of Milos Stalik tomorrow on Worldview Get yours in at 312-893-8680. Coming up next, we'll find out about the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The global climate strike and the U.N. Climate Action Summit focused minds on what we can do to rapidly bring down greenhouse gas emissions. Cities are a key part of that effort. Johanna uh, Parton is a director, is the director of the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. It's a collaboration of global cities partnering to cut greenhouse gases 80 to 100 percent by 2050 or sooner. Thanks a lot for joining us, Johanna. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us more about this Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. What are you guys? Well, as you mentioned, we're an international alliance of what we call the climate vanguard cities, the cities that have adopted the most ambitious and are, are working to actively implement the most ambitious carbon reduction targets of any cities in the world. So some of there's one in Australia, the Boulder, Colorado is one, uh, Copenhagen, Helsinki, London, Melbourne, Minneapolis, New York, Oslo, Portland, Rio de Janeiro, San Francisco, Seattle, Stockholm, Sydney, Toronto, uh, Vancouver, Washington, and uh, Yokohama. That's right. And we actually have three in Australia. Um, but what you may notice as you lift off the, list off the cities is that these are quite different cities, right? I mean, Very you know, Rio is quite different from Yokohama and quite different from London and Boulder, Colorado. And so there are a lot of kind of differences between the, the context that these cities are facing. But what is common between them is, first of all, these cities have adopted the most ambitious targets. I mean, what what some of these cities are trying to achieve is really, really massive in scale, uh, working to get to carbon neutrality, and even to look at what cities can do about drawing down carbon from the atmosphere. So not just zeroing out emissions, but really looking at how can we actually pull out some of the carbon from the atmosphere as well. So, there, Is there natural ways to do that, or is this all science whiz-bang stuff? You hear a lot about the science whiz-bang stuff. The stuff that, that we are most interested in is the natural stuff, and of course trees, right? Everybody knows about, about tree planting, and that's good for the atmosphere and, and the climate. Um, but what, we, what we've been learning more about is what role cities can play as part of their zero-waste strategies of getting people to compost food waste and then uh, composting that and then putting that on surrounding soils or, in Yokohama's case, in the ocean through the form of seaweed. And that actually reduces a significant amount of carbon. 
All right. And, you, and now San Francisco has uh, some ideas about this, too? San Francisco's been working on this uh, for a long time with surrounding neighborhoods. And, of course, San Francisco has lots of access to uh, wine country and, and agricultural land. So they're working. You have to do this as an ecosystem. You can't just do it within city boundaries. But uh, San Francisco does require composting for everyone in the city. And then they take that food waste, they compost it, and they apply it to surrounding soil. And what San Francisco has found is this may be able to draw down carbon, something like 20% of, of the carbon um, in the atmosphere. That's amazing. It's huge. Um, where is Chicago in all this? Because we've got this new whiz-bang um, goal, but we're not in the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. Well, there are a lot of cities that aren't part of the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance that meet our criteria. You know, And our criteria is that you have to formally adopt a, a goal of getting to at least 80% reduction by 2050. And Chicago meets that. And lots of other cities meet that. Um, and, and we are intentionally small. So we, it's not that we want to work with, you everyone. know, well, we do want to work with everyone, but you don't have to be a member for us to work with you. In fact, we work with hundreds of cities around the world and, and we only have 21 members. So Chicago does meet our membership criteria, but they're not yet a member. So we'll talk to them about that. I'm talking with Johanna Parton. She is the director of the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance, and we're talking about their efforts to get cities to drop down uh, to 80% or 100% greenhouse gases uh, gone by 2050 or sooner. Now, you've got something called a Game Changers Initiative. Uh, Tell us what that is. Last year, we asked our members, what has been game-changing for you? What has been transformational in really helping shift, uh, move the needle uh, in a significant way and help you get, help you make a significant jump toward reaching your carbon neutrality goals? There are lots of reports out there that look at everything and anything that cities should be doing. We really wanted to focus in on, on the seven ones that we think are kind of the emerging topics and what cities, if they're not doing them now, they really ought to look at um, whether or not they can meet their goals without doing these. So we called it the Game Changers, Bold Actions by Cities to Accelerate Progress Toward Carbon Neutrality. And you can download this from our website, carbonneutralcities.org. And really what we're attempting to do is to look at seven of the policies that we think are really going to change the game um, in a couple of different sectors or action areas. Let's tick through a few of them. Um, There's uh, a couple that have to do with buildings. Um, One is adopting a zero emission standard for new buildings. Another is decarbonization of buildings, heating and cooling systems. And, you know, we just had the city of Evanston on a couple weeks ago, and they said buildings are like 70, 80 percent of their carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions output. They're um, for some places, this is the ball game. Yeah, for many, many areas. I mean, buildings are part of the challenge for every city, um, and for some cities even more more so than others. Um, and, and you know, when you look at I'm, – I'm a former city official myself. I know how hard it is to tackle some of these big policies. Um, they're politically challenging to, to undertake, but if we do not um, – 
adopt a zero emission standards at, uh, requirement for at least new construction very, very soon, we're not going to achieve carbon neutrality. There's just no way around it. So even though that feels very hard to do, and I know from experience that it is quite hard to get a policy like that passed, we're not going to get there unless we do. And so that was one of our game changers. And what cities have adopted a zero emission standard for new buildings? Is that, uh, that That's got to be something... Uh, you know, we're throwing up a lot of buildings around here, and they're not zero emissions. Well, it is it is quite difficult, and there are lots of examples coming out of Europe, um, looking at passive house requirements for buildings, looking at, you know, do you require developers to take a prescriptive path and do these 10 things? Or do you just say, like New York is is um, requiring its largest buildings to do, we require you to achieve a certain emissions reduction, and you can get there however you want. Uh, the city of Vancouver passed this, so this is now a new requirement that buildings, all new construction by 2030, I believe, it may be 2025, um, must achieve passive house or better standards in all new construction. And passive house is uh, what kind of standard? Um, well, it's a, it's a complex standard that basically means zero emissions and really puts a focus on the livability of the building. So it's a comfortable, inviting place to live and also is emitting zero emissions. Um, we mentioned decarbonization of buildings, heating and cooling systems. Uh, a lot of people have natural gas furnaces. A lot of people have natural gas ovens. And uh, this is, uh, and then uh, that's a big problem. It's a huge challenge. And the most ambitious cities are starting to ban fossil fuel heating and cooling. Um, and so you look at the city of Oslo, for example, by next year, there will be zero fossil fuel heating and cooling systems in the majority of buildings in Oslo. And, and in fact, Norway was so inspired, they actually pa- passed it nationally. The city of Berkeley, California, just passed a ban on all new natural gas hookups. Um, and other cities are looking at the city of Seattle today just announced that they are um, phasing out uh, heating oil in homes to get rid of that fossil fuel in their system. So if you look at... Um, You know, this is really kind of a a climate issue, but it's really also a health issue. You know, if you look at indoor air quality, we are more unsafe by cooking from natural gas uh, because we are mostly using natural gas to cook. I'm talking with Johanna Parton. She's director of the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. We're talking about some of their game changer initiatives. And I wanted to say something about... um, setting a climate bu- budget. I think uh, whoa, it's one of your initiatives here, and it's something a lot of cities haven't done yet. A lot of suburbs around here, I don't think have any idea what their carbon budget is. Uh, well, explain the importance of doing this. So a carbon budget or a climate budget is looking at every city has a fiscal budget, right? And you have to get that passed either annually or every three years or you do updates, et cetera. It varies, but every city has a fiscal budget. What a climate budget is, is basically doing the same thing but for emissions. So a city can only – city departments can only emit or be responsible for a certain number of emissions, and they can't go above that. And also city departments are then allotted oversight over reducing the – 
the climate em- the greenhouse gas emissions that they have oversight over. So it's it's a parallel process to a fiscal budget, and every time they review the fiscal budget, they have to review the the climate budget. So cities like Oslo have done this, Stockholm has done it, the city of Sydney is looking at it, and a number of North American cities are looking at it as well. And you have to know what your number is if you're really going to tackle it. You've got to you do. knuckle you have down to, on it. You have to start with that. But we also say there's a lot of planning paralysis. So just because you don't know exactly where every single greenhouse gas emission is coming from, don't spend five years trying to figure that out and then do something. Start doing the stuff we know how to do now and also make sure you're pulling that data together. One of your game-changer initiatives is building an ubiquitous electric vehicle charging infrastructure. I think as electric vehicles get uh, more range, it seems like the infrastructure issues lighten up a little bit. Uh, what, what, do you, what is a, an effective uh, electric charging infrastructure? Well, I first want to say that we are a biking, walking, public transit first program, and most of our cities are as well. So, you know, one of the challenges with EVs is they're cool. You know, I drive one. I, I love electric vehicles. But if, too. if we just build a bunch of EV, uh, encourage everybody to drive an EV, we're still going to have livability and congestion issues. There's affordability and access issues, etc. However, the future of transportation is either biking and walking or public transit, or it's electric. And so we have to make it easier and and more accessible. And so we're working with our cities with taxi systems and ride-sharing systems and looking at mobility hubs and how do we make it easier for folks that don't necessarily, can't either purchase an EV or can't charge it because they live in an apartment building, et cetera. How do you build an infrastructure that allows people to make use of them, even if they don't have a garage, they can't charge at home. Is anybody doing a good job of that? Because so many people uh, you know, I work with say, I would love to, I live in an apartment, I can't charge. Well, I think there are some good jobs that are starting to happen with that. There are a number of cities that are um, starting to implement ubiquitous EV charging uh, strategies. Lots of great examples coming out of out of Europe, but the city of Seattle, for example, is really looking at this. Number of cities have required their taxi fleets to either go hybrid or electric. They're electrifying their municipal fleets. So we're making progress there, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, let's talk about another uh, issue here centering people in equity. This one is a big one these days. The Green New Deal, all, um, all you know, big moving efforts seem to feature this. I think we need to do a better job of designing city policies around the needs of the people, as opposed to saying, well, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by this amount. We need more people to to take the bus, for example. How do we instead look at uh, how to make buses and public transit accessible, safe, affordable, enjoyable, um, can you imagine everyone <laughs> saying, I love riding my bus, you know, to school or work in the morning? The city of Portland is doing a really good job around this. But we really need to get better at how do we design policies that are climate related but are primarily focused on needing the pe- the needs of people. And I think affordability is a big issue. It, it, it's sometimes – it seems like public transportation is some kind of punitive tax on people or something. Affordability is a big issue. Accessibility is a big issue. Um, Do people feel like it is safe for them to take uh, public transit? 
do we make it safe for people to bike wherever they want to go? We need more, we need better biking lanes and, and safe infrastructure for biking so that anyone from 7 to 70 can bike and feel safe and comfortable doing it. How are you feeling about um, the goals that everyone has set? We were just sitting there at the UN Climate Action Summit, and um, it seems like a lot of countries are coming up short on their goals and getting to where we need to go. It seems like we have the tools and ideas, but um, the wheels uh, need more turning. Uh, a lot of countries are coming up short, and our country being one of one of the main ones. We are really inspired by the work that cities are doing because cities are really the most ambitious. They're the most politically courageous, we think, about tackling climate change that is, you know, the at the level of ambition that we really need to achieve. And so I think um, – and cities are really where you feel the impacts of climate. When there's a flood, when there's a fire, people call their local government. They don't call their national government. So so we are really inspired by the work in, uh, that cities are doing, and we think that that can be held up as a model for other levels of government to follow and to become more ambitious themselves. Johanna Parton is the director of the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. It's a collaboration of global cities partnering to cut greenhouse gas emissions by 80 to 100 percent by 2050 or sooner. Thanks a lot for joining us talking about the alliance, and uh, let's get out there and do it. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. With me is Shoma Roy. She's an engineer by training and is the founder of a learning platform called the Nourishment Projects. Thanks for joining us, Shoma. Thank you for making me feel so welcome, Jerome. Tell me a little about yourself because um, you were an engineer by training. You work for lots of big firms and you've uh, gone off to, to do something entirely different here. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I've worked with companies like Raytheon, like Chevron, like Siemens. I do have a Six Sigma black belt as a process engineer. You know, fundamentally what an engineer does is find solutions. We have complex problems in the world. And I'm 46 and I'm a mother. And this is my spiritual obligation. This is my way of giving back. In this world that we live in now, a preponderance of data in an evidence-based world that we live in, and look what we do. You know, species that survived evolution don't survive us. There's something vile about that. And so I'm not here to preach anything, change anything. It's just this is what little I could do, be the change you want to see in the world. And the change is mainly me. And so what this does, the nourishment projects... As it says, it's called the Nourishment Projects because it's about nourishing a love of learning to develop a discerning mind. An engineer solves problems, right? Basic of solving problem is first understand the problem, first seek to understand. Before you go f coming up with solutions, really know what the problem is. And we have historical data of that. We developed DDT 
then we spend eons and billions trying to get the DDJ out of our systems. So really, let's find and understand what the problem is. I'm thrilled to bits, you know, that this program runs at University of Chicago, UEI school. It's starting again at the Chicago Zoological Society this Saturday. I love the team there. They promote biophilia. Stuart Stroll and his team are brilliant. And there we'll tackle the issues of Amazon deforestation. But first, really understand what is deforestation. And so understand how does the birds in the Amazon, how does deforestation impact that? Explain what happens when you go to a place like the Zoological Society. Um, What kind of technique do you use here? There is no technique. It's more like, you know, per the name, in a basic format, the Nourishment Project is intergenerational. So it has participants in there who are seven years old, all the way to people who are in their 80s. Because per the name of your program, Worldview, it's sharing perspective. That's how we understand this world that we inhabit. It's almost like that Yeats poem, what do we know but that we face one another in this place? I want to understand you. Through this universality, I find out who I am. So when I go to the zoo, first things children will understand, where is the Amazon basic geography? Where is it? What does that mean? It's not like one little forest preserve. Understand the trees in the Amazon are not your forest preserve trees. They are massive, old-growth, ancient trees, magnificent, eye-wateringly beautiful. Lichens don't even grow on these trees till they're at least 150 years old. The effect of tree, how it is central to water filtration. Understand all that. Then we have a conversation. These children who are coming here want to become conservationists, right? Well, you can be a conservationist beyond studying environmental engineering. You need conservationists to be in the fields of economics, in the fields of policy, in writing, in English, No matter how passionate you are about something, you need to be able to communicate. So you need to be represented in every myriad of fields. So you interact and you tell the students that. My Six Sigma background comes in handy. It's great to be creative, but unless it's frameworked with discipline, sometimes creativity becomes chaos. So the Nourishment Project is a fun, creative way to apply a disciplined mindset. This is fundamentally mindset training. Is it different in the different places you bring the nourishment projects? For sure. So, for example, because biophilia is a predominant focus at the zoo, this is going through deforestation. At the University of Chicago, one of their goals is to get more females in the world of science representation, right? Who better than me to have a say in that? And I'm grateful for the opportunity. So I'm promoting that through the concept of fashion, Over 10 weeks, you break down fashion into multiple segments. Week one, 3D printing of fashion. You bring in technology and fashion. You use 3D printing, like the brand Chanel uses 3D printing. You know, you can 3D printing also means in terms of sustainability, less waste in the water, less dye waste, less material waste, less waste, full stop. Also, people who have been from, you know, veterans of the war who have lost a limb, or whatever it may be, when they're buying clothes, usually they buy anything off the rack and they get it altered. 3D printing is a, has a social aspect. You can print out the clothes you need, how you need it. Next week, it'll be about investiture. Vestments, for example, what does a priest wear in different culture versus what a pope wears versus what a imam wears versus what a Hindu priest wears versus what a Buddhist wears, right? Fashion, use it to express, look further, The impact on fashion or environment, there's always a central theme in what I try to get done. 
because of beavers, they were almost less than 10% left from the original number because of the fur trade. In the Victorian times, fashion, because women wanted to wear these outrageous, outlandish, but beautiful hats, almost killed the birds in South Pacific. Orientologists wept. Be conscious of what we do. There's nothing bad in what we do. We're very intelligent. But when you harness that with empathy, creativity, and perspective, we can do a lot more, and we should. I'm talking with Shoma Roy. She is the founder of a learning platform called The Nourishment Projects. Now, you have plans to expand to different countries, to different places. How will that work? (laughs) So right now, the program is global. So it runs in the U.S., it runs in Malaysia, it runs in India, it runs in Kenya. Fingers crossed it's adding on to Zimbabwe and Botswana. The reason it's scalable is, one, the program costs us less than about $100 a child per year, and it's fully self-funded to date. It allows everybody in here in the participants, to pursue their passion however they want. They're not tied up with any funding dollars. There's a whole amount of discipline that goes into creating this. But the reason for creating this, I want to tell you, is um, the applications of a program like this. There is no testing. The only thing it strives to cultivate is empathy, creativity, and perspective. Taken together, those three characteristics develop a great mind, a great leader who can see long-term. That's what you want. Where are the applications? In the job market, when the advent of artificial intelligence, where your biggest competition is going to be a computer, why should I hire you? I have the benefit of many, many Fortune 100 companies. Why should I hire you if road replicable things can be done by a computer? It runs seven days a week, 24 hours a day, no healthcare costs, no management nuisance. Why should I hire you at that point? If you're a person who has perspective, wide-ranging perspective, because that's what a computer doesn't have yet, It doesn't know the difference between a wink and a blink. You become valuable to me. In the global aspect, this program is extremely global. To know the world that you're doing a business in is important. Case in point, look at Dolce & Gabbana. Last year, they had an ad out during Christmas about this Chinese woman eating pizza with chopsticks. Tone deaf. It cost them tremendous market share. Those are not things you can risk as a company. College applications. If you have excellent grades, and I don't know, you've done a lot of things on your resume, uh, fed the homeless, raised unicorns for all I know, how exactly do you stand out when you're applying to top grades, right? Your perspective. How do you answer questions when they ask you? And these are real questions from entrance exams. If you were a number, what would you be? You need to have perspective. It stands you apart. And most importantly also, in a democracy demands, needs an educated populace, those who can think for themselves. It sounds like what you're doing is bringing a liberal arts education to people who need it. Is that um, who doesn't need it, especially in the world of science and technology? Liberal arts majors, (laughs) they need it. Yes, but you see, engineering students need to have it. You cannot be having straight-on design when you don't know what you're designing. In reality, technology has its limits. For all the greatness we do, all this hubris we have, we don't know how to create oxygen. Let's take a step back and see for what it is. And I'm an engineer. I have a master's in electrical engineering. But you need to marry that with the humanities, with the arts and the science. The best of designers, Steve Jobs, he didn't create the iPad or the tablet. It was a failed Microsoft product. What he did is made it beautiful. It's the beauty that draws. And therein lies this aspects of biodiversity conservation. Data doesn't move people. 
you transform data into insight, you can really do something then. What exactly is data to you unless you understand what does that mean? How do you experience these data that we keep talking about over and over again? You need to connect it with something. You know, it seems like one of the side effects of modern living is alienation and uh, technology alienating people and driving us further apart. Do you think that having the nourishment projects can help with that? Thank you for that question. That's exactly it. Technology can tear us apart if we let it. This program will be running online. It's a Chicago program. I love it. It's a Chicago program embracing the world. It runs in physical locations in Chicago, but it also runs concurrently online. So what you use now, it's your version of a worldview. Share perspectives. It's the interconnection. Use the Internet to connect people together. It need not tear us apart. It's important to me that I see the other person's point of view. It's the 90-10 rule, Jerome. 90% of the time, you will agree with the person you think you disagree with, different points of view. In the 10% where you vociferously disagree, if you stop and learn, you know, we share many of the same interests. You start with a common point. Why should 10% of things that we don't agree with prevent us from working? <laughs> because we agree 90%. That overall big view needs to be seen. The nourishment project is called so because it nourishes a love of learning to cultivate a discerning mind. This discernment is important. We are inundated with noise everywhere we are. It's telling us constantly social pressure, social media, we should eat this, we should do this, we should be this, we should think this. Stop. No. It drowns out our own thinking. The Nourishment Project, in my sincerest hope, gives us a little buffer. What is really worthy of my time? What do I want to pay attention to? Find that voice within. It took me a while to find it, but I'm grateful for it. And my overarching sense is we all have a voice. Find it. Find what truly matters, this aristocracy of thought, and obey its will. That's mainly it. Shoma Roy is an engineer by training and is the founder of the learning platform called The Nourishment Projects. Mm -hmm. If people want more information, they can uh, contact your <laughs> website a little bit. Yes, it's query, Q-U-E-R-Y, at the Nourishment Projects. It's plural.com. And the website is www.thenourishmentprojects.com. Thank you very much, Shoma Roy. Great to meet you. Thank you, Jerome. A pleasure to meet you as well. Tomorrow on Worldview, we will celebrate our longtime film contributor, Milos Stalik. There will be clips with, uh, from Milos. There will be talking with friends, sharing stories, and we'd love to share your story. If you have a story about Milos you'd like to share on tomorrow's program, call our listener hotline number 312-893-8680. That's 893-8680. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.